You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it was a pretty wild night of fights at UFC 269. I think you could argue both the main event and co-main event ended in upsets, one obviously historic in nature, the other one maybe just surprising uh, because of how we thought that fight was going to go. Both of them also sort of come from behind wins for Charles Oliveira and Juliana Pena. And, uh, you know, just a bunch of stoppages throughout this card, really, on the main card and on the prelims. We got, as we always do in the wake of these pay-per-view events, a ton of mail from the people listening to the show at home. And so today we're going to dispense with our normal three-round format And we are going to uh, do mostly listener mail this week. I think we'll have uh, some sort of free-form discussions about how some of these fights went. But we're mostly going to take questions from the listeners this week because uh, they're good questions. And we love to hear from the people, from the proud supporters of the co-main event. So that's that's what we're going to do for the next hour here. Hopefully get into all of these different topics that we find uh, occupying our minds here on Monday. The first thing, though, that I think... We both need to concede about UFC 269 is that neither of us were able to watch it live. I had a family thing, and uh, I assume you had a, a, a booth reserved at the strip club, and so you had to to go do that instead of staying home to watch the pay per view. And maybe, frankly, this is what we get when we don't watch the pay per view live. The MMA gods get a sense of it, and they just create chaos on the fight card. Well, first of all. If I wanted to see your family, that's what I would do is run a booth at the strip club. Okay. Ouch. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Second of all, you know what? If this is what it takes, if you and I have to not watch live and instead catch up on Sunday morning and our gift to the MMA community is that then the fights will be fucking awesome every time, I'm prepared to make that sacrifice because there are good and bad things about doing it this way. I realize. And for one thing, I'm grateful for just the flexibility to be able to do it that way, not working the regular beat in MMA media right now and not having to sit there and write recaps or something right after it's over or run some kind of live blog. If you're doing that kind of shit, you don't really have the option. Just be like, all right, Saturday night, uh, booth at the strip club, check you guys Sunday in the AM. And it's nice to every once in a while be able to do it this way, especially because All UFC events, whether they're pay-per-views or fight nights, there's a considerable amount of filler. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in there that is not actually fighting. And it's it's kind of amazing how much I don't realize it when I'm just in the habit of every Saturday night sitting down there and watching it live. When you go back and you watch one on Sunday and just picking out the individual fights and it takes you so much less time to watch every single thing that happened, that's when you realize it. You go, oh, I'm sitting through a lot of stuff to watch an MMA event that is not MMA. Yeah. 
Uh, did you manage to do this spoiler free for the most part? No. Okay. You know what? I kind of gave up on I I managed to make it through the evening spoiler free, even though I was feeling the, the itchy Twitter thumb to get on there and just, but I felt like that's going to confuse me. If I get on there and it's just people being like, what a war. These guys are swanging, you know, like that, that will only entice my curiosity without giving me any actual information. So I avoided that, but then I started to get, you know, I get texts, things like that. People who want to talk to me about stuff that was going on. So the results aspect of it was already starting to get a little bit frayed for me. So then I went ahead and went right to the, you know, UFC 269 page on Wikipedia to be like, let me just see what the fuck happened. Then let me reattach the top of my skull that has blown (laughs) off in surprise when I hear that Juliana Pena submitted Amanda Nunes. Then let me grab a coffee, let me settle down, frankly, and let me go back through it. And it's always such a, a different experience to do it that way. Just when you you already know and you're watching it and you're you're sort of looking for the things. Um, it's also kind of curious in that like sometimes I start to see enough chatter where people are talking about Charles Oliveira grabbing Dustin Poirier's gloves, for instance. And so then I'm really watching it and it's like, oh, okay, I guess maybe, I guess maybe he grabbed his gloves. You guys maybe got caught up in the moment. Because it doesn't seem like going back Sunday morning, knowing the results already doesn't seem like the the deciding turning point in the fight. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've found that is almost always the case when you find there's a a some plot line has advanced itself on social media, and then you go back and you watch the actual fight, and it doesn't seem like as big of a deal when you just watch the actual action than it does if you watch all of the copious fallout on the on the social medias. And I would argue even uh, the Pris- Priscilla Cashuera eye gouge here against Jillian Robertson in the first fight of the night on ESPN Plus, the first prelim, where it's like, we got so much mail about that. And there was so many people like tagging me on Twitter to alert me to the fact that Priscilla Cashuera had, had perhaps uh, taken Dundasso a little bit too far. That by the time I actually watched it, like, yeah, it's a dirty move. And uh, it's pretty obvious. And you did it right in front of the damn ref while he was staring at you, trying to see if you were going to tap out to the rear naked choke. But it's not like she dug her thumb into her eye for... If you if you just looked at the online fallout, you would think Priscilla Cashuera took her thumb and stuck it in, in Jillian Robertson's eye socket for like five minutes. Yeah, you were looking for like a Dan Doherty versus Captain Turner sort of thing, just plucking the eyeball right out of there. Yeah, and it really wasn't it wasn't like that. It was is like one second long. Too, she did try to do it a couple of times, but it it wasn't quite as egregious as you might uh, expect if you only looked at the fallout. I also I tried for a while to uh, to do spoiler free uh, Saturday night, and then right before. Uh, I went to bed. I was like, okay, this thing's got to be over. Maybe I won't see any spoilers. Kind of unthinkingly, I refreshed my Twitter timeline and I saw a picture of Charles Oliveira wearing the belt. And I was like, okay, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that settles that. You know what, though? Uh, I'm sure it's people want to reach out to you because of this niche you've carved out for yourself as being the expert on cheating in professional cage fights. Yeah. However, if we're going to make some kind of tiered system 
of what it really is egregious cheating, like the kind of like like eye gouging, kneeing somebody in the head while they're down, like that kind of stuff that actually like injures your opponent and can be super serious. That's on a whole different tier than glove grabbing. Yeah, like no, glove, I agree. Glove grabbing is the kind of thing where do it as long as you can get away with it. You know, when the ref says let go of his gloves, or the guy says, hey, ref, he's holding my gloves, something like that, then fine, you gotta do it. But you don't ever see people lose a point right away for glove grabbing. You you get yourself two or three warnings easy for yeah. glove grabbing. So yeah. that one, I feel like, whole different level. Even, you know, shorts grabbing, sure, grabbing the, the fence on a takedown. I mean, if you really don't want to be down there, you kind of might as well. Um, but the whole different ball game from re- just reaching into another person's eyeball. Yeah, and and make no mistake, I do want to say the Priscilla Cachoeira one was egregious. Uh, but it, you're right, it is funny that... Uh, Whenever anything extracurricular happens inside a an MMA cage, people always will be like, oh, Chad Dundas is definitely going to want to see this. How nice and, for you. Yeah. Somebody, they see another person get kicked in the balls and they think, Chad Dundas. Yep, they immediately That's the first think name me. that comes to mind. And you know what? Nine times out of ten, they're right. They're right. I do want to see it. All right. Well, let's let's no no reason to, to drag this out any further. Remember, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. If you like what you hear from us on this show, feel free to roll on over to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. Check out all the stuff we got going on there. Three additional podcasts every single week for the beloved patrons of the co-main event, the Wednesday live chat the thursday doing the damn thing podcast and the friday power hour and so we're basically kicking it over there all damn week we got three handy tiers of patronage a patronage tier for every budget we like to say so if you want to check out more from the co-main event hit us up patreon.com slash co-main event dare i even say we got a community going on yep. over there and we're inviting community inviting you to come be part of it all right let's talk uh let's talk about this ufc 269 main event charles Oliveira defeats dustin poirier by third round rear naked choke submission his first successful title defense uh since capturing the 155 pound belt this is a big one we talked on friday about how important this was uh both for charles Oliveira and for the lightweight division to kind of solidify him now as the the undisputed lightweight champion we can agree on that that he has uh made his bones so to speak as as the champ here with a win over Dustin Poirier and I think a lot of people maybe even you and I included thought Poirier was the bet here that Poirier was going to win and for a time during the first round it kind of looked like that was the case because Dustin Poirier was winning the day with his power and these two guys had a tremendous pace going for the first you know, pretty much the whole fight, really, but especially for the first five minutes. Uh, but the edge seemed to be that when Dustin Poirier hit Charles Oliveira, Charles Oliveira seemed to feel it a lot more acutely than Dustin Poirier felt any of the things Charles Oliveira was doing. However, as things played out, I do think that the general consensus about this fight and the stuff that they were saying on the UFC broadcast turned out to be true, that like Charles Oliveira's bodywork seemed like it, it ended up paying some dividends for him as, you know, he was able to spend the second round mostly all the way on top of Dustin Poirier. And then in the third, he comes out quickly, 
gets the back in a standing position up against the cage. We know how dangerous he is. If you give him any advantageous position in a grappling situation, he locks in the rear naked choke and Dustin Poirier taps out still on his feet. So not necessarily the way I think we forecasted this was going to go. What was your initial takeaway here from Charles Oliveira's third round submission win over Dustin Poirier? Yeah, we were talking about it. Does Charles Oliveira have to get this one to the ground? Turns out, no. He can submit you (laughs) while you are still standing up, no problem. Uh, I was surprised. I was surprised to see it go. I mean, the way the first two rounds unfolded, not entirely shocking. It's starting to look like Charles Oliveira is the king of getting rocked early in a championship fight that he comes back to win. Happened to him against Michael Chandler. Happened to him a couple times here in the first round against Dustin Poirier. One of the really nice ones. You know, he hits him with that right hand very early on in the first round. And that one really had Oliveira a little bit wobbly. But the one where he drops him later in the round. And it's such a nice read on Dustin Poirier's part. Because he realized that Oliveira was timing him as he ducked his head in there. And was catching him with that uppercut. And he got caught pretty cleanly with, with Charles Oliveira's uppercut. And he went, aha. He's keying on that. And so he he basically threw the left hand to and acted like, okay, here it comes again to draw out that uppercut. And it worked. Charles Oliveira threw the uppercut right when he wanted him to, stepped back, uh, avoided it entirely, and then countered with that right hand that dropped him. And that's just like, that's a beautiful in-fight read made right away by Dustin Poirier. Yeah. And when you're just watching that first round, you're thinking, man, he is really getting the better of it. His, his power seems to be a big problem with Charles Oliveira. Oliveira was doing a lot, uh, putting the pressure on him a lot, chipping away with a lot of different shots to the body. It kind of, but after going back to the, the stools after that first round, you had to be feeling pretty good about Dustin Poirier's chances. And it sounded like from what he said afterwards, he was feeling pretty good about it, that he was getting up off the stool after a first round thinking, I'm going to be a champion tonight. And the thing I still can't quite figure out, and I'm not even sure the extent to which it matters in the final outcome, but in the, the second round, they get in there, and here's where the, the glove-grabbing moment comes in. But it doesn't seem like that's a huge factor in Dustin Poirier's decision-making there, where Charles Oliveira looks like, you know, he's sort of getting himself in sort of a omoplata-type position as Dustin Poirier is still standing up. And Poirier rolls forward. Yeah. It didn't seem like he was in any immediate danger right there. Like, it didn't seem like it was close to being a submission. I don't know if he just was starting to feel uncomfortable that Charles Oliveira is working some sort of plan on him that he, and he doesn't know where it's going, so let me go ahead and do something else. But he rolls forward, ends up giving up top position, has Oliveira in his close guard for pretty much that entire second round. And what the commentators were saying was basically he felt like the mistake he made against Khabib was getting impatient and trying to not give up a bad position to lose a round and ended up losing the entire fight. And so, not going to take too many chances. Keep the guy in your close guard, even though he's landed some good elbows, landed some good strikes from top position in there. But just keep him there. Let him have this round. Come back strong the next one. And it just felt like... I, I couldn't tell... Is this Dustin Poirier making bad decisions under pressure? Was the body stuff starting to get to him? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I still am not entirely sure what was happening with him there. Because it felt like when he could keep it on the feet and keep them in a, in a striking range, he was winning that fight. Right. Well, the, and the only thing I would say is, doesn't it seem like he rolled to try to get Charles Oliver's fingers out of his glove? Like he was in that position. And it, you're right, it didn't seem like 
he was in any imminent danger of, of being submitted in that position. But that was when Charles Oliveira had his fingers inside the glove of Poirier. And it seemed like Oliveira was holding him like that. And he was going to try to kind of suck him in into like either an Oma Plata or maybe an armbar. Who knows uh, if he could have rolled for one from there. But I got the impression that Poirier didn't like that and that he wanted to get, he wanted Charles Oliveira to let go of his arm, frankly, and get his, get his, fingers out of his glove and so he rolled and ended up winding up on the bottom and I I guess it just kind of goes to show like even I don't even know if you would call it a mistake but even like a uh, a tactical decision that seemed that you make in a split second for starters and that seems innocuous at first ends up putting you on your back with Charles Oliveira on top of you and then you make what I think is like a quizzical strategical decision to go you know, body triangle closed guard there and not even try to get back up. Uh, I mean, that to me honestly does make some kind of sense because that's a out of, out of respect for what that guy can do sure. with just a little bit of an opening. And I he basically it, proves you right in the third round yeah. that he doesn't need much, you know? I think I think it makes sense on paper that that's your strategy against Charles Oliveira is to stay there and not give him any opportunities. But I wonder if you asked Dustin Poirier and, and uh, Mike Brown and the American top team guys today, if they would do the same thing. I'm not totally sure. I, I'll let me squeeze this in this question from the pasta Rasta where he says, let me get a jujitsu. <laughs> jujitsu. What? Da- damn. I feel old. Charles Oliveira has really turned into an adult right before our eyes. Just yesterday, he was going against the likes of Frankie Edgar and Nick Lentz. And now he's out here becoming the undisputed 155 pound King. Please speak on that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good a good question here or a good point to make. And like, maybe some of this is that like, uh, now we, we, uh, have to give Charles Oliver the respect that he deserves. And like, I always knew he was good. always knew he was a killer. Uh, but I thought Dustin Poirier was going to win this fight and, and I was wrong. Well, you know what we've talked about before, how one thing the MMA community is not great at is revising a previously held opinion of a fighter that we make, early judgments based on what we see of them and think, okay, this person is a contender. This person is a journeyman. This person is at this level above which they shall never rise. And I think maybe we did some of that with Charles Oliveira where, you know, he fought for years at featherweight. Uh, it seemed like he had talent, but then would lose some here or there. People kind of had it in their heads that we've seen what there is to see from Charles Oliveira and we're not accepting new information. And then you see the guy at this point in his career, putting it all together becoming lightweight champ and really solidifying it with a win over Dustin Poirier, who came in with everybody thinking of him as almost an uncrowned champ. Plus, he's one of the only guys in that division right now who can say, uh, I didn't get smashed by Khabib, I didn't even get a chance. And so, I, I mean, I do think we have to not only give him individually the respect that he deserves, but we have to acknowledge that people can get better at this. People can start to really find their stride, find figure out what their game is, and uh, really settle in and make a good run. People can also get worse at this. Uh, but we are just not that great as a community at allowing for that possibility. That maybe the guy we saw seven, eight years ago isn't the guy that we will continue to see forever and ever. Yeah, we did get this question uh, from listener rhymes with a female body part. Okay, I got I believe that's a 
really deep cut Seinfeld reference there. Okay. All right. Uh, he writes, fellas, as an Endeavor shareholder, I employ you to fly Habib into Missoula and take him around to the finest restaurants in town and then sign him up to fight Chucky Olives. Of all the fights that slipped through the cracks over the years, I believe this is the greatest and most interesting fight that could be made that we unfortunately are just not going to get. Now, like you said, it is kind of at this point, uh, a feather in the cap sort of, or like a, a, like a nice card to have in your back pocket for Charles Oliveira to be like, yeah, all these other chumps lost to Habib. So maybe if they were champion, it wouldn't be legit, but I never did. So check me out as the, as the champion. I also think from a purely athletic, like physical matchup standpoint, Habib versus Charles Oliveira would be fascinating because yeah. the stuff that Charles Oliveira likes to do would at least have a chance to foil the stuff that Habib likes to do because Habib just wants to stick to you like glue, get you up against the fence, take you down, be on top of you, ground and pound, talk to Dana White while he's doing it. And like, I don't know if he's going to be able to do that with Charles Oliveira because Charles Oliveira is such a absolute technician in the submission department. I also think, like I said on Friday during the power hour, we cannot do this for the rest of our lives. <laughs> we cannot, At some point, we got to move on. We cannot play the what if Habib was here game for the rest of our lives. So while I theoretically agree that Charles Oliveira versus Habib Nurmagomedov would be an outstanding athletic competition, I'm not going to spend a ton of time worried about what would happen or that we didn't get to see it or what the landscape would be like if Habib was here. Because he's not. Habib Nurmagomedov is not walking through that door unless he does. And then if he does, <laughs> then I'll start to get excited about it. Other than that, I'm moving on, man. I'm moving forward. I do like the suggestion that maybe the thing that could really seal it, it wasn't working when Dana White's taking him to all these fancy Las Vegas restaurants, all that kind of stuff, trying to talk him into it. What we really need to do, fly him into Missoula, yeah. take him out to double front chicken. That's what I was just going to say. Habib, we got a place we need to take you called double front chicken. We're going to get you chicken and a red beer in a basement bar, mm-hmm. and, it's, and we're going to lay it all out for you. We're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. We're going to be down there in that basement bar where it could be 11 a.m., could be 10 p.m. You'll never know. It just while away the day down there while we gnaw on some chicken and talk about your future, my man. And you're right that stylistically it does seem like a fascinating fight. Also seems like people are going to, until they got the chance to see the evidence, assume that Charles Oliveira would lose it. But then again, they thought Charles Oliveira would lose this one for the most part. And especially the way he goes and gets this finish in this fight where Dustin Poirier, he knows that that's Charles Oliveira's takedown game where he just wants to sort of get you up against the fence and sort of get into a clinch situation and then work from there and just see what you're giving him. And he's trying not to give him anything. And then the next thing you know, the guy's on your back. And that's a a really kind of sneaky jujitsu game to have to deal with because it doesn't seem like a dire situation until it is. It's the kind of position where you keep thinking, okay, I'm going to get out of this. And then it just gets worse and worse. And then suddenly it's really bad and, and you're stuck. And that's like, that is a different sort of threat than what we have gotten used to seeing, especially in lightweight title picture stuff. So 
a guy who brings that, but who also is a tough guy who can bounce back from getting dropped, who has that that lanky striking style that Oliveira has. Uh, that's going to be a tough guy for some of these people to deal with. And honestly, once you even start throwing out the next possibilities, we're talking Justin Gaethje, all that kind of stuff, I'm like, man, you you kind of can't come up with a Charles Oliveira title fight that I don't want to see. Yeah. Uh, throughout this episode, I might lay out my umbrella, umbrella theory that even though a lot of these finishes at UFC 269 were wild and perhaps unexpected, maybe they actually set the stage for some cool shit all over the company because longtime listeners of the show will know that's one of the ways that you and I revolutionized the mixed martial arts industry was that as far as I know, we were the first ones to ever come up with the concept. It's better to win than lose. That's right. That is our, our greatest contribution to the discourse. It's if you have a chance, you should win because generally Mm -hmm. speaking, it's better to win the fights than to lose. However, and maybe I'll just speak uh, specifically to the lightweight division at this moment, uh, Dustin Poirier sounds like he's at a bit of a crossroads just to listen to what he's saying in the post-fight uh, press conference. He's not sure what is next for him. But for us as fans, did we dodge a little bit of a bullet here by having Charles Oliveira win this fight? Because now you can book Charles Oliveira against Justin Gaethje, which is awesome. We all want to see it. And pretty much uh like regret free you can book Dustin Poirier against Conor McGregor for and we don't at least in the immediate have to worry about Conor McGregor going to come up in here and fuck up our lightweight title picture yeah yeah i mean if that's what we want to do that can be more easily done uh assuming that that's still how we feel and you know four or five months or whenever it is, Conor McGregor is actually ready to come back and get in there and, and do some stuff. Uh, I mean, you did see him out there talking about when is he going to fight Charles Oliveira, right? Like, you saw that. I saw it. Going to go ahead and just dismiss it. I'm going to ignore it until, I, until I'm forced not to. Because we're going to do Charles Oliveira, Justin Gates, you please don't fuck that up. That's a layup, man. I'm not even going to speak it into existence. I'm not even going to dignify it with a response. Until we get, the, we we are absolutely forced to do that. All I right. mean, but you did mention, you know, Dustin Poirier. To how how can you not feel sad for the guy? Yeah. To to get to this point in his career where it felt like, all right, this is going to be Dustin Poirier's big moment, and he's off to a great start. And then the next thing you know, Charles Oliveira's on your back, and you just don't respond in time or with enough in time. And then you lose, and he was talking about that feeling of being heartbroken afterwards and now trying to think, where do you go from there? Do you, do you get right back on a title mindset? Like, I got to win a few more fights and I'll be right back in there, and who knows, maybe somebody else is the champion, maybe I get a rematch, whatever. Uh, or do you just go, what's a fun fight? Let me make a little more money while I can. Or do you just decide maybe you don't want to do it anymore? Like, yeah, like, that's we a tough place to be. Dustin Poirier is the kind of guy that seems like he could go do something else and he would have some success in it. Uh, but at the same time, like I said, now that you're not the champion, maybe the door is a little bit more open to do Conor McGregor again or to do Nate Diaz or something like that, that you might make a little bit more money. 
doing. So it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, happens next for Dustin Poirier, a guy that I agree. It's it's easy to feel bad for him on this Monday after seeing this happen. Uh, I'm going to do this question from Hank Vanderherk, which came in. He says, WTF, when walking backstage, someone took Charles Oliveira's glasses. How low must one's character be to do that to such a sweetheart of a man? I sincerely hope this doesn't change Oliveira's enthusiastic and happy attitude. But seriously, though, fuck that lowlife that tried to take them. Ben, somebody tried to steal Charles Oliveira's glasses out here? Well, and these are not like his sunglasses, right? These are his seeing glasses. Yeah, and I, as a uh, completely four-eyed podcast I believe the co-main event is in a unique position to comment here because that is a low move, man, to steal someone's glasses if he needs them to see. And well, not, I think and he not might, the least of which because glasses are fucking expensive, man. Well, and I think he might actually need them more than we... I mean, if you steal my glasses, I'm going to be going, well, I hope I don't have to drive anywhere tonight and I hope I don't have to read anything that is more than six feet away. Hope I don't have to recognize an acquaintance seen out of context who is across the room. Those are the things that I will not be able to do if you steal my glasses during my I walk back to the dressing room. Charles Oliveira, I think maybe even might need those glasses a little more. And if you are the person, if like if you if you manage to take Charles Oliveira's glasses successfully off his face and you think, okay, here is my UFC memorabilia, I hope I hope that they are cursed in your hands. I hope they bring you nothing but ill luck. I hope you you put those glasses in your your breast pocket and think, aha, these will be I sell these on eBay or something. Put them in my trophy case. And I hope you walk right out across the street from the T-Mobile Center and get hit by a taxi cab. Because that is a low move, brother. Yeah, that's a low low move. And who knows if Charles Oliveira's health insurance even has vision included? So a lot of them don't. I know, you know? that's what I'm saying. Uh, also, I would think you better hope Charles Oliveira doesn't find out it was you that stole his glasses. Like, mm-hmm. not only is it a dick move to, like, steal somebody's glasses, and you're right. If Charles Oliveira is wearing his spectacles to and from the octagon, uh, pretty good chance he needs those. That he, that he like, needs them for the walk to and from the giant well-lit cage that he has to go to might be a sign that he, he has some uh, serious vision <laughs> deficiencies there but like yeah man not only is it a dick move just to steal a guy's glasses for multiple reasons you just stole the glasses of a guy who made dustin poirier quit in a fight the lightweight champion like that you better you, hope his friends don't point you out to him yeah you i mean be like my, that's you the better guy. have had your passport and plane ticket in your pocket you stole charles Oliveira's glasses and went straight to the airport and just flew to antarctica you better hope that his friends don't allow him, like hold you still long enough for him to put hands on you. Once, once he figures out where you are, then you're in trouble. Yeah, it's just a unthinkable. Let's talk about Amanda Nunes versus uh, Juliana Pena here. Obviously the most shocking result at UFC 269. Uh, Juliana Pena uh, uh, made us all look like dummies. Made every single one of us look like dummies. Uh, she goes out there suffers some some difficult early moments against Amanda Nunes, comes back and wins second round, rear naked choke, is now your women's bantamweight champion, and uh, obviously some fallout from this fight. Let's just talk first about the fight. Amanda Nunes started out looking very much like we are accustomed to seeing her look, and then 
she appeared to fade pretty quickly in the second round. We got this question from Dude Love. Oh, good to hear from Dude Love. Yeah. He writes, uh, that was some Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson level shit. We got to give some credit to Pena, but a mentally locked in Nunez wins that fight. If she survived a firefight with Cyborg, she should have survived this. Uh, what happened out there to Amanda Nunez, in your opinion? Because this was like clearly a shocking result. And the way that it transpired was also kind of odd. Yeah. I mean, let's go ahead and let's say the obvious thing right now is that Juliana Pena wins this huge historic upset. Good for her. You know, feel good moment for her and her team. They all really enjoyed that and they they earned that. They get to have that moment. But the MMA community and most likely the UFC itself is going to treat Juliana Pena like she just hit a half court shot. Yeah. And we're going to the first thing we're going to do, we're going to look at you. We're going to look over at that basketball rim. We're going to look back at you with our eyebrow raised. Then we're going to walk back over with the same basketball and say, do it again. Yeah, prove it. It's going to be like at the end of horse when you got to make the prove it shot. And honestly, while that's a huge win for her, I still can't say that I would make her the favorite going into a rematch with Amanda Nunes. Because you're right, the first round looks kind of like what you would expect, where Amanda Nunes is dominating every aspect of it. When she lands on the feet, she seems to be more powerful. She drops Juliana Pena. When they get into grappling exchanges, she ends up on top and just sort of muscling her around. And it seems like they go out there and they get into the, the second round, and Juliana Pena lands a couple good jabs kind of inside Amanda Nunes's right hand. And I don't know if it's that Nunes just gets in that mindset of, like, I got to plant my feet and take this girl's head off. Or like, oh, no, you don't get to hit me in the face kind yeah. of thing. But she's just swinging really big. Just like she's trying to end it with every single punch she throws at that point. And the next thing you know, just looking at her body language, she suddenly seems exhausted. And it, it is surprising because we've seen her go five rounds. We've, we've seen her in some, some hard fights. We, I mean, we have seen her in fights before, like earlier against Valentina Shevchenko, get tired later in a fight. But usually after doing a lot more work, putting a lot more output to get tired. And here, it seemed like just all of a sudden, she really doesn't look good at all. Doesn't look comfortable at all. And you can see her just sort of getting worried and exhausted and... Even the the actual finish where she gets taken down there and Juliana Pena is working on that choke, but it doesn't seem like it's there yet when she yeah. taps out. You know, she's Pena is still trying to get her hooks in, and, and it seems like she has it on the jaw rather than on the neck. And Nunes taps out. It, it just seems like I don't know if it was physically or mentally and emotionally, but like hit a wall all of a sudden and went from looking like the Amanda Nunes that we're used to to looking awful. Yeah. Yeah, well, and Juliana Pena came out first things first at the start of that second round and hit her with a jab and then hit her with it again. And yeah. then it was like the light bulb came on. Like if it was a cartoon, you would have seen the light bulb pop up over Juliana Pena's head where she was like, oh, this is working. And she just kept doing it. She landed that jab like three times before the UFC broadcast team even noticed. Like, Well, and she was landing it inside these power shots that Amanda Nunes is trying to throw. Like, she is just trying to reach out there and touch her, and Amanda Nunes is trying to separate her from her consciousness with everything she throws. And it seemed yeah. like maybe that started to be a little bit of the difference. Yeah, and it was also like you could imagine the, the if it was a video game, the life meter on Amanda Nunes just started to take chunks out of it. 
with those with the shots that Juliana Pena was throwing. But I agree with you. It was very strange. Like the, how the whole thing went down was very strange. And by the time Pena got on top and locked in that choke or started working on the choke, the tap happened very fast. And so all of that, I think, are uh, things that make you go, hmm, so to speak. And we talked a lot, not just about Amanda Nunes, but uh, in general, going back to the days of George St. Pierre, of how hard it is and how physically and emotionally draining it is to constantly walk the razor's edge of being a dominant champion in the UFC, where it's like, you know, in many cases, your competition is getting better and better, not, not just like holding stagnant, but actively getting better. And you as the champion have to continually keep pace with that. And so it could very well be that just for this particular fight where she was such a big favorite, and uh, Juliana Pena was such a long shot underdog that maybe Amanda Nunes just didn't didn't prepare the way that she well, has prepared in the past. It, it's it's hard to know, but something happened out there that uh, that didn't look right. Let's just say. Okay, I was I've been thinking though about this quote about her post fight quote because this one in particular where she says, "I trained very hard for this, but I feel like I still like fought with a couple of things I thought I fixed, but they came back tonight." Uh, congratulations to Juliana; she's a warrior. I knew that the whole time. I'm gonna go back to the gym and train hard and come back strong. Fought with a couple of things I thought I fixed. What do you think that refers to? Do you think that that is just the sort of maybe getting too caught up and trying to go out there and and knock somebody out with every single blow. And the next thing you know, you've thrown a bunch of hard punches. They're still there. You're tired and kind of thinking, Oh shit. Yeah. It's hard to know. It's impossible to know exactly what that means. But like we heard Dustin Poirier say in the wake of the lightweight title fight, he's like, I wasn't supposed to go out there and brawl. And I did. So, you know, maybe it's just something like that where, where Amanda Nunes thought that she was going to have a different fight, thought that she was going to, be more technical and more patient. And then in that second round did get kind of baited into a firefight uh, where she is, you know, putting too much into her punches and ends up kind of sucking too much energy out before, before you get into the grappling portion there. I I don't know. It is like, not, not that I I think you can read anything into it, but it is a weird coincidence that kind of this exact thing, same thing happened to both of the American top team fighters on the top of this card where they both started out really strong and then they ran into some adversity and then they ended up falling victim to the same choke. And like having similar tap situations too. Well, how about as long as we're throwing out possibilities, how about this question from our dude, David James over on Patreon who writes, nobody talking about Nunes having COVID back in August. She didn't look like herself out there. And that's now, true. That's true. And like, it's, it's, it's a big conclusion to jump to that that could yeah. be still hampering her. And if she's not going to say it out loud, it's kind of does her a disservice, I think, to speculate on that kind of stuff. But that is a factor. And that could be a factor. And it had been a couple years since she defended her bantamweight title, right? So like, there's a bunch of different stuff in the ether that potentially could have been holding her back. And the the honest to God truth is that we just don't know at this point what, if anything, was the, the actual problem here. Yeah. But you know, Aren't you already sort of mentally preparing for a rematch in which Amanda Nunes again shows up as a huge favorite? Yes. Yeah. And then, and just from <coughs> recent history, it seems like that's, that's probably what the UFC will, will want to do. Uh, I want to read this one from our guy, Shad Rap, who wrote in and said, I'm curious, do the events that transpired Saturday change anything of the potential for Kayla Harrison to come to the UFC way different weight classes, of course, but now that they're, 
may be some intrigue at bantamweight, does that hurt help or do nothing toward a potential Kayla Harrison, Amanda Nunes fight one day? It's weird to me that we are all acting like a potential Kayla Harrison, Amanda Nunes fight is lost product. Like we could not possibly do that now. And the person who's doing it most of all is Dana White, who, who seemed completely disinterested in that a week ago. And now that Amanda Nunes has lost is like, well, that would have been one of the biggest fights of the year. One of the biggest fights you could make, yada, yada, yada. Now we can't do it. And the whole time, and people, I've seen some other people saying this online too, like people saying that you can't do the Kayla Harrison fight. And I'm thinking, why not? Like, she remember, got another belt, man. Yeah. She got a belt in and the higher division that Kayla Harrison could actually possibly fight in. That's where so, the, we'd be having the fight. Like, she's the featherweight champion. Amanda Nunes is the featherweight champion. And Kayla Harrison would be coming into featherweight. Like, you can absolutely still do that fight. And. Remember earlier when I said, maybe this opened the door, the results of this pay-per-view opened the door for some cool shit? To me, that seems like the perfect next fight for Amanda Nunes. Like, she's still the featherweight champ. She would still have a good chance of defeating Kayla Harrison. It would be a good chance for us to see what what was going on with her at this UFC 269 fight. Can she come back against Kayla Harrison and still look like the Amanda Nunes of old? Like, I... I, I booked that tomorrow if you can. I think it's like a terrific next fight for her. Like if you ignore the fact that she and Kayla are both teammates, uh, but they, I think they have both kind of said they would do it. So like if you could do that fight, to me, it's still an incredibly live pay-per-view main event potential fight. And I don't understand why we would sit around and pretend like we can't do it now. It, that whole thing was weird, especially because uh, as far as we know, you haven't signed Kayla Harrison yet. You're talking, right? That's yeah. what he said. Like, she said if we were talking, we've been talking. Um, so you're still in the talking phase of this thing. And yet you're right. Talking immediately like it was just an epic fumbling of the bag. And it's not, the matter's not settled in either regard. It's, I mean, especially if you're going to turn around and do a Julia Pena, Amanda Nunes rematch. Uh, Nunes might very well win that one. Even if you can't do that one right away, she has another belt in the higher division that Kayla Harrison would actually be competing in. And you haven't even got there yet. You haven't even got to the part of putting some ink on paper when it comes to that stuff. So why are you acting like, uh, like you're throwing up your hands and being like, well, that's over with. Like, I, as a promotional strategy, that seems odd to me. I would think you would want, you, the person who stands to profit from it, as Dana White does, would be the one trying to keep the possibility alive as long as possible. And instead, just sort of showing up and just shaking his head. I can't believe it. How about that? All right, before we move on to the dumb shit that uh, Juliana Pena said after this fight, I wanted to do a quick shout out to our guy, Michael Chiesa. (laughs) Okay, Uh, okay. First of all, uh, we, another shout out, frankly, to our guy, Sean, over there on Twitter, who posted this video of the the aftermath of the Juliana Pena win, where you basically see all of the people in the front row and all of their <laughs> reactions to the win. Yeah. And it's like a damn Dante poem or like a yeah. it's like a, a lot a, of jaws on the floor after that one. Yeah, it's like a Renaissance painting of a Bible scene or something like <laughs> first of David all, David Spade is standing there looking just like his soul has left his body. And Misha Tate is so excited that both her friend Juliana Pena is the champion and now perhaps Misha Tate could fight her. Uh, and Kayla Harrison is standing there basically with her back to the fence. I would assume like kind of bummed that her teammate lost more than being bummed that there was an epic fumbling of the bag because the bag is, as we have both just said, is to us still intact and out there for the for the non-fumbling if people want to unfumble it. Uh, but Michael Chiesa, 
apparently had a couple few too many soda pops, at least according to Dana White's telling. And I think in a way we can all empathize with and all relate to wanting to jump the fence to go in there and celebrate with his friend and longtime teammate, Juliana Pena, who had just pulled out, pulled off perhaps the biggest upset in the history of the UFC. Yeah. Like, uh, if only that could be any of us, I think we would all do the exact same thing. And I only think Michael Chiesa is more likable and more relatable now from having seen it, frankly. You know what? And you know what else I could relate to is if your longtime teammate and friend is fighting for the world title that night, it might be kind of an anxious situation. Mm-hmm. And you're at this uh, event in Las Vegas and maybe... I can relate to the possibility that when you're put in an anxious situation, next thing you know, you have drank too much. Wow, these Bud Lights are going down fast, you mm-hmm. would think to yourself at some point. Mm-hmm. It's weird. I'm nervous, and also suddenly I have become drunk. Like, we've been there. Yeah. We've been there. And mm-hmm. then I'm there the, the right shit now. happens, and then you, you get to, to freak out and celebrate, and oh my god, she did it? Yeah, man. Uh, that That's the time when the the very small trigger in your brain that normally keeps you from freaking out and jumping the fence might just get get flipped, you know? And then next thing you know, there you have a situation on your hands, frankly. You can take the kid out of Spokane, but you can't take the Spokane out of Michael Chiesa. All right, where's our question here about... Uh, I believe Juliana you're referring to this Pena. one from the Mission District Crow. Okay, the Mission District Crow writes in and says, I'm sure you'll devote lots of time to Juliana Pena this podcast, but I want to ask a parallel question. What do you think is her actual potential to be a breakout star? Oh, wait, this is not the wait, one. Wait, this is not the one. Okay, yeah, uh, Louise Nevelson, this is okay. the one. Yeah, that's the right one. Right here, it says, once again, the unique nature of MMA proves it will not be bound by the confines of gender. The MMA gods had a good old time at our expense yet again, and somehow the champion they have given us began her reign with a weird, unnecessary hot take on the title of mom and the levels within that distinction. I can't wait to hear the booth rank moms in their specific mom classes. Live birth, cesarean, adoptive, foster. <laughs> Um, okay. And adds, maybe a discourse on the nature of things that are better left unsaid and the MMA stars that consistently say them. Mm-hmm. This just did seem so unnecessary. And you know what? I don't want to turn into like a big controversy or anything and, and really nail Juliana Pena over a, a misstep here. It did seem, though, what my mother would refer to as tacky. Yeah. It's tacky. Yeah. You can kind of understand how she would say that without fully comprehending the entire breadth of how it would be interpreted and what it would mean and kind of how shitty that is of a thing to say. Like, I don't think that Juliana Pena necessarily had thought it through or meant it that way. But yeah, it sucks, man. That's shitty. You shouldn't have said that. And then, like, to say it on the night that you have accomplished this thing yeah. is additionally, whew, that's very MMA, I think is the only thing I can say about it. Just extremely MMA to do that. If you, the way to say this thing that you're trying to say, I guess, is to maybe just to focus on you and your own journey to this point rather than and compare it to this other person who gets called a mom but is kind of not really. Like, what you're trying to say, the core idea in here is a, a fair one. That, like, hey, I, my, I I put my body through this 
life-altering experience of giving birth to a child and then raising that child, both huge endeavors. And then, you know, as a, as a pro athlete, I can imagine that it's a, a big thing because you don't always know how your body will bounce back from something like that. That's a huge thing to put your body through. Yeah. And when your body is the way that you make a living and you need it to come back or at least be in an excellent form, I can understand how that you'd have a lot of anxiety around that. And then you would be very proud of yourself that, look, I did this and then I became a world champion afterwards. It's like, that's fine. You could say that. You don't have to say a thing like, and compare it to the other person because kind of I'm better than them because I gave birth to the baby. Just saying. Like, that's the part you don't need to do. That's where it gets tacky. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no reason at that point to compare your experience to the lesbian couple who recently uh, had a baby through different means. Just well, Well, and also, I mean, like, Hey, look, I ain't never given birth to a baby, Jed, but I've raised them, and that shit ain't easy either, man. Right. So, like, you do that shit, you get to call yourself a mom, you know? Like, that, that that's no no walk in the park. Uh, yeah, the, there is this one from the Mission District Crows, basically says, what's Juliana Pena's uh, potential as a breakout star? She's got media experience in English and Spanish and has charisma. She's also inclined to cringe trash talk uh, and unflattering behavior. On a scale of Henry Cejudo to Conor McGregor, where one is a corny C-list celebrity and another is a B-plus list menace to society, what are we talking about here? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think that like the, the, the real answer to this question is that Juliana Pena has to hold on to the belt to, yep. uh, to realize any of that potential and like that. And like I said before, like, frankly, if I were the UFC, if I were booking this shit on one hand, do you need to strike while the iron is hot to do Juliana Pena versus Amanda Nunes, the rematch? Maybe you do. But to me, it almost seems better to have Amanda Nunes fight Kayla Harrison at featherweight and let Juliana Pena do something else. Like I thought Lauren Murphy had like a, uh, like a, a great analytical tweet about how business at Bantamweight is wide open now. Like you could do anything. And it, I, that kind of seems right to me. Like why not let Bantamweight, you know, see what it can produce with Juliana Pena at, at the top for six months, eight months, whatever, a year, however long it takes for us to do the Kayla Harrison, Amanda Nunes fight. And then we kind of go from there. Like, I, I grow tired of all these immediate rematches. I agree that this one, you could kind of, well, not kind of, you could absolutely make a case for that you should run it back and do it again just because of the, the nature of the upset was so shocking. But like, it seems fun to do the other thing too, man. And maybe sometimes we should do the fun thing that seems like it'll produce... Like more storylines and 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 a better time for everybody for a little while. Well, what you're advocating here, and and I don't think you're wrong that hey, we have had one champion here at women's bantamweight for so long, and we were just complaining about how it seems like there's no no fresh people, and now here we have an opportunity to open things up a little bit. Why would we ruin that by just doing the immediate rematch kind of thing? But you're advocating exactly the Buster Douglas scenario where, you know, Buster Douglas comes along, beats Mike Tyson when nobody thinks he will. Uh, and then we're going to turn right around and drop the belt to Evander Holyfield. And I don't know, there are pros and cons, I guess, to doing it that way. Because I think that right now, Juliana Pena is being looked at as like, okay, great story, great upset, but we need to see you prove it 
before anybody is going to really settle into the Juliana Pena title reign. Like they're not going to be convinced just on that one alone. And I don't know, how many other contenders would she have to beat to alleviate that doubt that could be alleviated just by beating Amanda Nunes again? Yeah, she would never alleviate it. In, in, until yeah, she, she, she beats Nunes. her again. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. And until she fought Nunes again, she would never alleviate it. But like, I don't know. Wouldn't it be fun enough to have Amanda Nunes fight Kayla Harrison that we could we could all like be cool for a few months and like <laughs> let us have another fight here? Like, it's just to me, like that seems. I guess maybe if you do uh, Amanda Nunes versus Juliana Pena in the immediate rematch, you get you get one fight out of it. But if Kayla Harrison versus Amanda Nunes is really as big a fight as Dana White had suddenly decided that it was after he had convinced himself that it had evaporated, like maybe you do that one and you let Juliana Pena fight whoever is the number one contender at bantamweight and whoever the winner of that one is, then she fights Amanda Nunes. I don't know. Seems fine to me. Yeah. No, I mean, there are both, there are arguments and there are both scenarios there. Uh, I just also think like we're don't you think that we're have heard the last of Juliana Pena being mad about people not taking her seriously as the champion yet? Because I feel like that's that one is on the horizon. That one's yeah. coming. Yeah, that's the obvious uh, storyline for whatever happens next for her. Uh, we got a lot of mail about Cody Garbrandt and a lot of mail about Sean O'Malley. So let's uh, let's get to some of those. We'll do this Sean O'Malley one first, I guess. He uh, defeated Julian Pava in the first fight on pay-per-view, a first-round TKO where Sean O'Malley was able to to style in all of the ways that I think that you brought him there to style, and he gets the win uh, at this point. Dana White has said, now it looks like we're going to have to pay him, so take that for whatever it is worth. Uh, O'Malley has won three fights in a row now since his loss to Chito Vera in August of 2020. We got this email from brian jones over on patreon he says why is sean o'malley so famous slash popular i ask because i checked the mma junkie headlines after this card completed and two of the three quote-unquote featured stories were o'malley the leading article being o'malley details pre-fight injury and the second one was o'malley live reacts to garbrandt tko loss and the third was the chucky olives fight result the pena upset also required scrolling to find you guys have often talked about how these decisions are made purely from a numbers and traffic standpoint so i ask how the fook is o'malley pulling that much traffic more than the fourth biggest upset by the odds in UFC title history, a reaction video at that. He can talk in front of a camera, but he isn't eloquent and lacks the McGregor hype energy often coming across as a, as bored. Honestly, what am I missing? Um, I don't know how the MMA junkie, uh, headline carousel works, so I can't speak to that, but it could well be that those are the most trafficked stories that that get put up there in the in the lead positions from moment to moment. They're also publishing so many damn stories over there on Fight Night and beyond that it's possible that you just caught them at a time when those yeah. O'Malley stories kind of stacked up on each other. That is entirely possible just because of how much content that sites like MMA Junkie and MMA Fighting both churn out on Fight Night when they have somebody there because they're just you're doing those backstage interviews one right after another and you're just reeling anything off and especially the tendency uh, on fight night especially is to break everything down into the smallest chunk of information you can so that you can get more stories out of it. And so it, it might not have been that way for very long. But, I mean, I was at the the last Sean O'Malley one where uh, at the, the 
Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor won in Vegas over the summer. And when Sean O'Malley walked out, you could feel the crowd pop for him. Like, there is a response there from the MMA public. I mean, if you're saying you don't understand why they care about this guy or, or the extent to which they care about that guy, fine. But, but people do. People are interested. Like, the his, his name in the headline gets clicks. People are, they care. They're captivated in one sense or another. I mean, I don't think it's anywhere like Conor McGregor levels or anything yet. But... People are interested, and the UFC is definitely only responding to that interest. Like the the stuff Dana White was saying beforehand, like, "Hey, you don't throw this guy in to the deep waters too soon. You got to build him up a little bit." That's just because the UFC recognizes the value there. That if we if we play this out a little longer and and help turn this guy into a thing, it will benefit us. Like we yeah. will profit from it. He is potentially the first fighter in UFC history whose hair dye job is color coordinated with his chest tattoo. So that could be a big part of it. And when he gets to do his stuff, he looks good. Yeah, he looks good in this fight. I mean, when he strings together some of his combinations, he's he's he looks damn dangerous, man. Like I I can understand how people get excited, and he has a, a fan friendly fighting style, um, and he just seems very comfortable being in the spotlight. And I, I think a lot of those things kind of add up, and uh, people get into it. Yeah, and as long as the whole crowd is chanting Sean O'Malley, like hard to second guess any of it like i I couldn't necessarily tell you exactly why aside from the fact that he's a fun to watch fighter and he has he distinguishes himself he seems to get it in terms of like a uh, media relations standpoint like the stuff he has to do to make himself stand out clearly we have talked also a bunch about the fact that he seems to say dumb stuff on his own podcast a lot of the time so there are some there's i'm not going to say he's a genius when it comes to like how to be in public but he's from from like a how to show up on fight week and make yourself stand out standpoint, he seems to get it and he's fun to watch and had the whole damn crowd in Vegas chanting his name. So I don't know that you can read into it much more than that. And standing out at all in the just some fights era of the UFC is tough as hell. So just accomplishing that is, is difficult enough. Yeah. Uh, this question from the Corgi King is, is the decline of Cody Garbrandt really a decline or is it an example of just how fast MMA evolves? He is still young and physically looks great, but it seems like his game, the game has, oh, his game has grown a bit stale. And then Dan Alexander writes, I'm no Garbrandt fan, but at one point should a fighter be saved from himself? I mean, Garbrandt has shown that he has no longer got the punch resistance or the ability uh, to not to try to fight fire with fire once he gets tagged by a top-tier fighter. Um, I hate seeing fighters take increasing amounts of brain damage. How long, how how can this guy be saved from himself? Please discourse. So, of course, uh, Cody Garves got knocked out by Kai Kara France in their flyweight fight, also on the main card of UFC 269, uh, which, again, in three minutes and 21 seconds in the first round, and again, was one of these fights where when you watch... Cody Garbrandt move around and throw punches and be involved in the fight. Like it's, he doesn't look like he's shot. He doesn't look like he's done. He still looks as, you know, athletic and maybe dangerous as ever. And then he gets punched in the face and, and, you know, leads to a longer finishing sequence, but it's kind of like he got tagged once and it was done kind of. Well, we've talked before about how sometimes he seems to have suffered from that get back disease where he gets tagged once and the only thing he could think to do is plant his feet and throw back as hard as he possibly can because he can't let you get one without him getting one right back. And that has not been to his favor. But also, I know people are going to come on and be like, hey, the, the guy's chin is shot. He can't take a punch. I don't know if it helps him to be down there at flyweight. 
if that is the problem that he's dealing with. I think we've seen a lot of fighters before where the extreme weight cut is definitely connected to uh, less resiliency sometimes in, in some of those firefight type battles. And if you're, if you're inclined to get in those in the first place, then maybe the better thing for you is not to be cutting as much weight as you can just f- sheer physically withstand uh, yeah. on you know 24 hours before you get in there. Uh, Cody Garbrandt is now one and five in his last six fights. If you count his back-to-back losses to TJ Dillashaw in November of 2017 and August of 2018, four of those fights have ended in a TKO or KO in the first or second round. So that is not the desired result for sure. If you are Cody Garbrandt and I have to admit it is a little troubling, but like, Again, it feels a little disingenuous to sit here from such a remove and and try to diagnose what's wrong with Cody Garbrandt. Like the guy's 30 years old. He's had 17 pro MMA fights. Is this a, a meaningful signpost in his career? Does it mean that he's shot or is it uh, just a skid that he can recover from? I couldn't I can't tell you one way or another. Uh, would you be pro or con right now? to try to do Cody Garbrandt against Sean O'Malley. I don't know. Just because one guy coming off a win, the other guy coming off a loss, I would think uh, just a little bit of that disparity where it, if you're Sean O'Malley, you might wonder, do I get the full shine of a, a win over Cody Garbrandt right now? Or are you just the next guy in line to beat Cody Garbrandt? I don't, I don't know. That's, that's the only calculation that I would be thinking or be a little concerned that he would be keep him out of that fight. Cause I think right now you could do a lot of fun things with Sean O'Malley with Cody Garbrandt. If, if I'm in Cody Garbrandt's corner, I want to let's take some time and figure out what the fuck is going on, man. Yeah. Uh, Richie Cunningham on Patreon wrote in to say, so that Kai car France chap is pretty good, huh? He is Kai car France, 28 years old. He is now, I believe six and two in the UFC. He's got two wins in a row coming into uh, 2021, both of them by first round knockout. And obviously uh, this most recent KO of Cody Garbrandt trumps his win over Tyson Nam in February of 2020 as clearly his, his biggest win in the promotion to date. Uh, he's another uh, New Zealander. I believe he's a city kickboxing guy. He is. He is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, he seems like a nice addition to uh, the flyweight division and clearly we'll have to keep some of this uh, winning going consistently in order to be considered one of the, one of the top guys at that division. But this is, this is a good start to be on uh, a two fight win streak now with a win over Cody Garbrandt and to be six and two overall in the UFC, not too shabby. Yep. Um, All right. Let's see here. We got a bunch of mail also about Dominic Cruz. This one from Chili Willie Reverend Gaskin. Okay. So he writes, in a perfect world, do you think we get Jose Aldo versus Dominic Cruz next? Two veterans with recent title defeats and currently back on the rise. If not, I wouldn't be mad at Cruz versus Sandhagen either. Uh, damn near dance dance revolution in the cage. So uh, <laughs> speaking, I, I was going to say, speaking of comeback wins, you got to give Dominic Cruz a shout out here also from overcoming like a pretty rough first round against Pedro Munoz and then uh, 
harnesses his skills, gets back to doing Dominic Cruz stuff, wins the final two rounds here, and gets the unanimous decision win. Uh, Cruz is now two fights removed from his back-to-back losses to Garbrandt and Henry Cejudo, and obviously a big gap in between those two fights because Cruz of and his injury history, but he's beaten Casey Kenny and Pedro Munoz now to get back to a win streak in the UFC. Uh, I don't know, is it Russian things with Dominic Cruz to throw him in there against either Jose Aldo or uh, Corey Sandhagen? Man, you know I've been talking about how much I want to see Dominic Cruz and Jose Aldo just for sheer WEC nostalgia factor. Let's just, come on, man. Let's get the blue canvas out of storage. Let's make it happen. It's a good time. I'd love to see that fight kind of anytime. I don't need to, doesn't matter what either one of them have been up to or where they've been, where they're going. Just anytime, any old time, make that one and I will be there. But, you know, honestly, this is an impressive performance in a way from Dominic Cruz because to see him get rocked, like he looked out. That second left hook that landed, that caught him kind of going away, caught him right on the chin. And when he dropped there, like, he was out for a second and popped right back in there. And then to come back, like, knowing, well, okay, you kind of, you gave away that round and got a battle back in the next two and looked sharp as hell doing it, man. Like, that, that's fucking tough to do. And, and that's a really impressive thing for him. But it also, it kind of does make you think, like, okay, the before, in Dominic Cruz's prime, you weren't touching him with that kind of stuff. Now, he's having to rely on some different skills. He's still got some of the Dominic Cruz stuff, you know? He He's still tough to find at times, but he's not impossible to find the way he used to be. And so now he has to rely on a little bit more of that veteran savvy and, and, and toughness and, and able to gut out a fight like this. The good news is he can do it. Like, a lot of guys, when they have to find a plan B after plan A works so well early on in their career, they find out they don't have one and, and they really go downhill in a hurry. And Dominic Cruz, he has that other stuff that he can rely on, but he's having to rely on it more. Uh, and that does make you wonder exactly where he can still go, but it's damn impressive to watch. Yeah. I just also feel like this UFC 269 card is another subtle reminder how awesome bantamweight is. Right, yeah. you got Sean O'Malley winning this fight. You got Dominic Cruz uh, winning his fight. Obviously, this stuff that's going on between Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling. You know, I'm sure everybody has opinions about both those two guys and how Sterling wound up with the title, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, putting together a unification fight with those guys seems fun. Like we've been talking about Jose Aldo on the rise again. T.J. Uh, Dillashaw being back around getting wins and then you know guys like Corey Sanhagen and and Rob Font and Dominic Cruz and Marlon Marais still kind of all hanging around there uh that's just a fun division man men's 135 pounds like lightweight and featherweight often suck up a lot of our attention talking about the how competitive and deep those divisions are but you kind of got to give it up for men's bantamweight at this point too there's a lot of fun stuff happening there I mean, everywhere between 155 and 125, honestly, is there's, as you would say, an embarrassment of riches. Indeed. Indeed. Um, I don't know if we wanted to take any of these. Well, let's do this uh, Priscilla Cashwera one. We talked about it at the top of the show, but Oscar Eagle writes in, what do you think about the Dundasso attempt in the first fight of the night? Priscilla Cashwera obviously went for an intentional foul, an eye gouge on two occasions. Should there be a post-fight penalty of some sort? Uh, I know there won't be. Please discuss. Now, see, I I wouldn't be so sure, man. Like, if you're Priscilla Cashuera, 
like a person who has a pretty good and interesting backstory, a person I did a story about once, uh, I think for Bleacher Report, but uh, is not a person you would assume that the UFC puts a ton of political capital in or stock in or thinks is going to be a big star. I feel like to go out and commit what was obviously an intentional foul, even if like the hype around it oversold it in some ways uh, to me, like, I feel like you're just kind of asking the UFC just to be like, you know what, this person like did a bad thing. I don't even know if it's worth having her around. Like in the next round of cuts, maybe she's gone. I mean, there's that. There's also the possibility though, and it's worth asking is at what point does the athletic commission get involved in stuff like that and say, look, we saw you, we saw what you did and we think we know why. And we're going to take some action, and fine you or suspend you or something like, isn't that exactly the kind of thing that an athletic commission should exist to do? Yeah. At least in theory. Yeah. Uh, I agree. And, and it doesn't seem like the athletic commission will, although sometimes they, you know, these things come out after the fact. So we'll just have to see, uh, what happens there. Well, the if there's father- one thing they like doing, it's coming up with a reason to take somebody's money. That's true. That's true. The father of economics, Adam Smith. <laughs> Who okay. I think you could make the case as a father of a certain kind of economics, uh, writes in our UFC, kind of podcast. Are UFC fans getting more polite? On Saturday, zero foreign fighters got heckled, fan, fights rarely got booed, and fans seemed to appreciate the art of grappling, even when fighters were stalemating. Are fans just grateful to see the rare arena fight, or is this civility due to something else? I mean, somebody stole Charles Oliveira's glasses. Yep. So let's not get too carried away about uh how we got a bunch of uh, first class <laughs> citizens in the arena. But uh, do you think that there's anything to the idea that if you are going to a UFC event right now, especially and like a UFC event that is headlined by Charles Oliveira versus Dustin Poirier and Amanda Nunes versus Juliana Pena, two fights that I think we inside the bubble view as incredibly awesome, but that might not capture as much mainstream attention as like an appearance by Conor McGregor or the heavyweight title fight that's coming up in January or anything like that. Do you think there's anything to it that in this climate, if you're going, if you're buying a ticket and going to the UFC now to watch this fight card, you are probably a pretty big MMA fan. Yeah, there's, there's something to that. I mean, I do still think for a certain kind of uh, like celebrity adjacent person, there's still the people who, I'm going to a UFC event because I'm in Las Vegas and it is the place to be and the place to be seen kind of thing. Right. I, but the majority of the crowd, of yeah, oh, Tommy Lee, you're talking about Tommy Lee right now. Uh, the majority of the crowd, maybe to go to an event like this in December of 2021 is like a, a better educated uh, about the sport, you know, hardcore fan who's going to know what's happening out there and is not going to boo Every time someone gets a takedown, is it, is it, I don't know if there's anything uh, to that, but that's a theory. There, there's probably something to that. I will tell you, such was not the case at Conor McGregor's fight against Dustin Poirier in Vegas over the summer, because there were a lot of people out there acting a damn fool and wearing proper twelve merch as if it was a Conor McGregor jersey. So, maybe it just it does depend heavily on who's on the bill for that particular evening. All right, that's probably going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks to everybody who wrote 
messages to the podcast, emails this week. We tried to get to as many of them as we could. It was a very newsy week, obviously, because we're trying to wrap up all the stuff that happened at UFC 269. So if you asked us a more general question and we didn't get to it, that's probably why. Feel free to submit those again, maybe during a week when there's not quite as much stuff going on and we can circle back and try to get to some of those. This this week, we kind of had to stick to UFC 269 and what was happening. Maybe you want to bring those up on Wednesday's live chat. That's um, right. Over on the Patreon page, we got right. Wednesday's live chat. Get involved in that for just a dollar a month. What's that? What's that chat? A dollar a month? That's not even money. Yeah. That's just, that's funny money right there. That's, you won't even you, miss it. You could lose a dollar a month just floating up out of your wallet while you slept and you'd never miss it. Check us out. Patreon.com slash co-main event. We'll be there for the rest of this week. Uh, thanks for listening to this show. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. This is probably a good time to tell you I have been going and taking money out of your wallet. Just, just a little only bit. a dollar at a time, though, right? Yeah, but for years, about fifteen now, years. Now I know where all, where all my cash has been. Well, here I thought my children were squirreling it away that they could they could blow it on fake money in the video games that they play. I have been investing it in crypto. Uh, but terribly. So, you know, kind of good news, bad news. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm not so much mad as I am disappointed, but I am proud of you for finally telling me. It felt like the right time. I was like, there's never going to be another time. you got to tell me now. <laughs>